This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased. But we do need your support. So leave a review on Apple or Spotify. And share with your friends or on social media. In today's conversation, we speak with Shilpi Chotre, who is a globally recognized communicator on the plastic pollution crisis with an expertise in strategic communications, organizing, and narrative change. From July 2017 to August 2021, Shilpi served as the Break Free from Plastic Global Communications Lead and has been integral to challenging and shifting the pro-industry narrative and centering frontline leadership as the preeminent voice on the plastic pollution crisis. Due to her experience on the issue and role as a media liaison, Shilpi is an often go-to source for journalists, including the New York Times, NPR, and Rolling Stones. Shilpi regularly speaks on plastic pollution, climate change, and intersectionality. Today, we talk about the state of plastic pollution and why this topic is so integral to environmental and human health. Shilpi discusses her multicultural media platform, People Over Plastic, and why it is important to elevate frontline community and indigenous voices in the conversation regarding pollution and climate change. We discuss the facts around plastic and how they impact our environment in every step of the plastic lifestyle, from creation to use to waste. This was an amazing conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. Now, onto the podcast. Hi, Shilpi. Welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to host you here today and, and be in conversation with you. I love the work you're doing, and I'm so excited to learn more about uh, what you've been up to and the activism work you've been doing. Thank you, Amanda. It's really great to be here. I'm a huge fan of your podcast as well. So it's it's an honor to have this conversation with you. Awesome. Thank you so much. So I'd love to just get started and, and talk about your journey into activism, environmental activism specifically. And um, you started uh, People Over Plastics. So how did you become involved specifically with plastic pollution? It's a bit of a wild journey. So I've been involved in the environmental advocacy and conservation policy space for about 12 years. My education and background experiences is more of a traditional environmental policy lens. I got my master's focused more on marine science and, and conservation. So really came into plastic as, as an ocean's plastic lens. You know, the last eight years, we've seen this enormous narrative shift from focusing on oceans to more upstream environmental health issues, which we'll get into today. But yeah, I really came into it from being concerned about the amount of plastic that we were seeing in marine research um, and, and then slowly moving more into the social justice and human health side of things. It was in 2017 that I was recruited to head communications for Break Free from Plastic, which is a massive global movement. If you haven't heard of it, we're 2,500 groups now working all around the world. And this was such an eye-opening experience for me where I got to meet with community organizers in Southeast Asia, South Asia, um, environmental justice communities in the United States. And I was like, there's 
a massive miss, missing link here. Uh, so that's where I got laser focused on um, demonstrating what was happening in these communities and also putting those solutions driven by those communities at the forefront. Yeah, I'm living close to the beach and the amount of plastic pollution in the ocean is so scary. <laughs> so I can see how you became passionate about that. So I wanted to actually jump into um, what is the state of plastic pollution today? So you said you got involved with it a few years back and um, how has it changed over the past decades? And even I feel like in the past few years, it's really um, dramatically increased as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the sad part, because I feel like there's so many amazing people working on this issue, and our activism is powerful. But unfortunately, the industry produces more plastic now than ever before in history. And there are a lot of false solutions out there. So part of launching people over plastic was an exercise in doing things radically differently. I think the NGO advocacy sector, we've done a really good job of, of putting plastic pollution on the map and real solutions. But to put this into perspective, in 1950, when plastic was uh, originally starting to be manufactured and, and scaled, the world only produced only 2 million tons per year. Since then, annual production has increased nearly 230-fold, reaching 460 million tons in 2019. And that was several years ago at this point, right? So I'm really looking forward to the, the next study of when um, this is going to be updated further. Yeah. And I, I know that you're saying the activism work is strong. There's so many people who are like fighting against the plastic pollution and really advocating for change, which is, I think, bringing the plastic conversation more in the forefront. And something that's wild that from a health perspective that we just started to research and learn more about is microplastics in general. And it's mm -hmm. not just plastic in like the ocean, but there's microplastics like within our bloodstream. They can find it in the placenta and in the blood of the babies, which is supposed to be completely free from toxins and a sterile environment, yet the plastics are even breaking through that. So it's, mm. um, it's a very interesting and the conversation is moving a little bit more towards health too, which I think is important because, I mean, we can be passionate about the ocean, but some people until it's directly impacting them won't necessarily make the changes. 100%. I'm so glad you brought up microplastics. I had this super illuminating conversation a couple of weeks ago with Matt Simon. He's a wire journalist that wrote A Poison Like No Other. So I highly recommend this book. It's about microplastics and nanoplastics. And why this conversation is so important is it's really centering uh, what what you're exactly what you're saying the human health impacts of consuming micro nanoplastics which there is so much uncertainty but we know consuming any amount of plastics cannot be good for our systems and especially women and reproduction we have to really think about the long term impacts of this and and let's not forget you know plastic comes from fossil fuels so inherently in the simplest terms as possible we are literally ingesting fossil fuels at some level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm jumping around a little bit and the, the questions that I'm giving you, but I think that what you just brought up, that the plastics come from fossil fuels. I don't think that's necessarily a connection that's been made yet, especially in the like mainstream narrative. So do you mind just outlining what are plastics? Like, where do they come from? How can the environment be impacted? Like, almost every single step of the way in the plastic production, the use, and then, of course, the, the waste. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's really fun having a conversation about microplastics at the tiniest, tiniest scale and then talking about the petrochemical giant. So let's let's get into it. Uh, 99% of plastic comes from an oil and gas based source. And we're talking about oil and gas. We're largely talking about petrochemicals. Uh, petrochemicals are the building blocks of plastic um, industrial chemicals and also pesticides. So we see a lot of the same conversations that we have in the plastic advocacy work uh, in, and also in the food justice and agriculture world as well. Uh, petrochemicals are derived from crude oil and frack gra- fracked gas, not fracked grass. <laughs> so there is this component of extracting the raw materials from the ground from this process called fracking, right? So in other words, plastic is coming from the ground. It's just added to a bunch of nasty chemicals like ethylene, propylene, butadine, and methanol. Um, That's what makes it so incredibly harmful to human health and to the communities that live on the fence line and front lines of this production. Um, A little bit more about petrochemicals that's worth noting. Petrochemical facilities are found all over the world. We have a rapid build-out right now in the Gulf South of the United States, so Texas, Louisiana, and then the Appalachian region, so Ohio River Valley. And this is also why people over plastic were doubling down on our reporting in these regions right now. Um, These petrochemical facilities are energy intensive. They dump an enormous amount of carbon pollution into the air, contributing significantly to climate change. So I'm really in the vein of we can't talk about plastic without talking about climate. And climate, we can't really address uh, the impacts and the growing impacts of greenhouse gas emissions without talking about plastic production specifically. Uh, one of the most concerning statistics, and I like to throw two out there, is where you know, industries ramping up production by 40% in the next decade, while our U.S. recycling rate has fallen below 5%. So there's an enormous discrepancy here. And it's like anyone hearing this is like, why the hell aren't we doing more about this? And and we can get into that um, as well. But, you know, in our opinion, with um, environmental justice advocates that work on this issue, petrochemical production is sort of this injustice, um, facing a lot of Black Indigenous communities in particular and Latinx in particular. And it's the poster child of environmental racism for many communities of color. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I've heard recently, too, that the fossil fuel industry is starting to recognize that people are trying to focus more on um, like electric vehicles. And so they're trying to figure out where to put their production and they're focusing heavily on single use plastics. And of course people aren't like you were just outlining and thank you for doing that. Um, People aren't necessarily aware where they're coming from and it's the fossil fuel industry just needs to continue to make money. And what are they going to make money on next? (laughs) It's such a, yes, you're spot on. And it's so important that we, understand why they're ramping up on single-use plastic and they're desperate. So in a lot of ways as activists and advocates, we've done a really good job, right? And in the renewable energy world, we're Mm -hmm. we're seeing this societal shift towards more um, renewable energy demand. But where are the, where's the bottom line going to go? You know, they're really looking at petrochemicals to stay afloat. One other thing you brought up um, that I want to reflect back on, you said single-use plastic. And I want to piggyback off that and also say 
the lower the value plastic, it's cheaper for them so they can get even bigger profit margins if they cut their costs. So not all plastic is created equal. There um, are varying degrees of how um, durable and light or the weight of plastic. And that all comes into why recycling is not working. It's why so much of our waste is shipped overseas. And there's a lot of double standards happening where certain types of plastic are being manufactured at an enormous rate and being sold and marketed in Global South in the form of sachets. So if you think about ketchup packets um, from your McDonald's or Arby's, you can get anything from coffee to toothpaste to rice in these single serve packets. These are multi-layer, low value, single use plastic. So the industry is actually... It, it at an exorbitant amount, they're ramping up their marketing to create more of a demand on sachets on this pro poor uh, argument to be able to produce at a really alarming late rate. And like I was saying, there is no ability to recycle these. It's flooding markets and communities in South Asia and Southeast Asia, especially. Also, it's going to Latin America and Africa. Wow. And, and of course, like we have to focus a little bit more upstream because a lot of these communities can't necessarily afford to use anything else, but what the plastic industry is producing and offering to them. So yeah, we have to kind of stop the production if we can. Yeah. And you know, what? what's interesting is when we go to these communities and we ask them, well, what do you think about sachets? Um, especially in the Philippines where I've spent a lot of time and they'll, they'll tell us, you know, we never asked for this. If before sachets, people would bring their tiffins or their reusable containers to the market, weigh them, get what they need for the day or a couple days or the week, even because there's no refrigerated refrigeration in a lot of these areas. Um, and so things were, were fresh and it was sold locally. They didn't need this kind of packaging um, so this is fairly new. You know, I'm Indian American and even going back to India the last few years, I've seen an, an enormous shift from where I'm from, a state called Odisha. Um, there has just been an inundation of these sachets when I literally remember less than 10 years ago walking with my grandma with, you know, one of our tiffins to fill up for for the day. And that was that was our errand for the day. So it's it's really taking away um a part of the culture as well. And I I think we need to talk about that more. Mm, yeah. Wow. So I that leads perfectly into the the question that I had about um the people over plastic mis mission and why you feel like it's so important to really focus on frontline community stories and indigenous stories um which you highlight in your podcast plastic over pollution and just in the work that you do uh why is it so important to to elevate these voices well it's a lot about what we're talking about already like you've said you know several times i don't think the general listener or the general consumer knows about this and and that's really problematic for us because these are communities that yes are suffering enormous health impacts but they also have the solutions to confront industry head on with policies and campaigning that's grounded with justice, equity, diversity, inclusion principles. And, and this is really, really important in terms of walking the talk on creating a more equitable, solutions-oriented society. Uh, and, and it just you, you would strike me like these are literally the smartest, innovate, most innovative people I've ever met. Why aren't they making headlines? Why is this guy 
um, that's, you know, cleaning up the ocean, making headlines in the New York Times, which is not a systemic solution, <laughs> right? I won't name any names. Where is this waste going anyway? Um, that, you know, people that are working in different parts of the world on scaling up zero waste community infrastructure. Okay, we have to move beyond I'm fitting all my trash into this mason jar. What am I actually doing at the city level to develop, you know, large scale organic composting, um, segregate, you know, trash and waste at the community and business level. All of this amazing infrastructure is happening. We just don't hear about it. Um, I started my work more at the global lens, um, but it, with the the latest work we're doing with people over plastic, we've really honed in on what's happening in the Gulf South. Um, and I'm I'm just completely humbled and amazed by um, the resistance of the communities that we work with and the success of the campaigning, which it, it really brings together so many different movements like labor and workforce development and um, even looking at how to support single mothers that are having children, you know, in this time. So we're really taking an intersectional approach, um, bringing in the lens of racial justice into climate reporting, which I don't think a lot of platforms are doing. Yeah, I, I love the work that you're doing. It's amazing. And and to piggyback yeah. off of the, yeah, piggyback off of the Gulf South. So that, yeah, like I told you before, I was living in New Orleans and working with um, the communities along the Mississippi and they just have, like you were saying, so many solutions and local solutions. And this is something that I think it's a difficult conversation within the climate movement in general, and then even just uh, like agriculture, because I'm focused very heavily on regenerative agriculture, and I do a lot of Amazing. agricultural work. Um, and it's very indigenous land-based. So a lot of times, especially in the United States, where we have such a large country, people want this like one-size-fits-all solution, but it very much is land-based. It's like what can work in your own communities. Like, for example, when I was working with the, the communities along the front lines of the Mississippi, they saw the health impacts directly from the petrochemical and fossil fuel industry creating all these plastics. And um, Joy Banner and her sister, her twin sister, they created this job fair so that people along the Mississippi could find other jobs. Um, so they were offering other like labor opportunities. And then they created just such a huge resistance movement that the fossil fuel industry has even created a group against them and put like millions of dollars into it. <laughs> the and Sustainability just... <laughs> Council. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. These people are are awesome. And I'm so glad that you're focusing on, on them because a lot of times the hard work that they're doing isn't necessarily like elevated, but I think more and more people are starting to talk about it, which is cool. Absolutely. So we've... Um highlighted the Descendants Project quite a bit in our storytelling, amazing sister duo. We also do live events, and this is part of the power building strategy. I think, you know, storytelling and developing the platforms and the safe spaces to tell those stories is important, but we really wanted to incorporate a power building component as well. And this is probably the activist in me that really wanted to, you know, tell these stories, but like, let's get people power together. And so we host live storytelling events that we called story salons. And we just had one in New Orleans uh, during Essence Festival this July, which is a big Black cultural festival of celebration. And Dr. Joy Banner and Joe Banner spoke um, for the evening alongside a bunch of other Black women environmental justice leaders in the area. And there was poetry and music and food and song. And so 
how do we culturalize even um, what's happening and make that part of the dominant strategy, right? And the dominant narrative. Yeah, I would actually love to pick your brain um, as (laughs) an activist. How do you feel like the climate story should be told? Obviously, you're a storyteller yourself, but I think there's a lot of discourse on like doomsdaying, like, oh, these are all the facts and figures and blah, 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 and versus hope. So how do you balance that storytelling? And what do you think is important in in bringing the environmental movement to mainstream? Yeah, thank you. That's that's such an important question. And and one that I've really been grappling with. I'm in the vein that we know the facts and the figures We, we already know the data is out there. It's now got to be a hearts and minds campaign. Um, how do we reach people where we have these amazing storytellers like the Banner Sisters, Ms. Sharon Levine, Shamira, right? Where they can resonate with what they're saying by the lens of, oh, she reminds me of my auntie or my grandma or my sister. Like I would be heartbroken if that happened to my community. How do I get involved? I am not a scientist or Um, a policy researcher or a campaigner, but what can I do to offer my skills and my interest in, in this, in this fight? And it's not an environmental one. If anything, it's about humankind and how do we nurture it and cultivate that sort of unified front? Um, I, I've seen a lot of young people, especially the Gen Z audience, which we actually tailor a lot of our messaging to because they are the next generation of voters. And I'm so inspired by their willpower and um, like ability to engage in a way, I think, as an elder millennial, we failed, <laughs> you know, in so many ways. Uh, but uh, it, they... There's, um, you know, fictional story writing competitions they're sponsoring. They're putting out, you know, calls to action that are grounded more in social justice, but have the uh, the facts and figures of the data of why this is a climate issue as well. Um, they're trying to get, you know, more screenwriters in Hollywood involved. I, I don't know if you've heard of the Hollywood Climate Summit, but it's very Gen Z focused and trying to get, you know, celebrities um, involved in in this work. So I'm, I'm really looking at um, how the Gen Z movement is taking on this, this fight and you know, how can we apply that and support them in in their efforts? I think you might have saw yesterday, Montana won a a historic lawsuit led by 16-year-old environmental leaders. So, you know, it is happening. That is the power of law. That's not, you know, simply youth activism. This is the power of the courts, the power of, you know, our legal system. It is happening. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's it's really inspiring to see what people are doing because I can I think a lot of the facts and figures we get and then we see you know in the media um, like Maui burning and then I was in Norway and there was uh, just now on vacation and there was huge like flooding and so it's we can't really escape it and it's very yeah. um, it's it's hard because like some people get so lost in the destruction and it's not necessarily motivating. <laughs> But having all of these people working for like hope and and on the the things that you're talking about is really inspiring. I think so too. And I think there's one more thing I'd love to mention is the power of art and artivism. And I, I just want to give a nod to my girl, Shiloh Shifsuleman, who runs the Fearless Collective. She's out of Bangalore, India, but they do 
work all over the world. And actually she'd be great for you to, to speak with. And she does these large scale murals, like I don't even know, 30, 30 feet high, 16 to 30 feet high in, in major cities to call attention to critical narratives. Um, one of the, the projects I worked on with her was um, amplifying indigenous leaders during COP, the, the last COP, uh, is it 27? Is it 27 yes. or 27? Yes, 27, I, can't remember. I think. COP 27. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because a lot of the indigenous leaders were sidelined from the negotiating tables. And so in Glasgow, in Glasgow she set up these amazing art installations that you couldn't really miss, you know, they were there, they're doing the work, they're in the cold, you know, while everyone's inside in the negotiating rooms eating beef, like, it's like this whole story she told me, um, which was so, uh, such a disconnect from like the work that is actually happening on the ground. I, I feature her in my podcast as well. So I think there, there's this role of art is also, um, so important. We feature a lot of BIPOC artists, uh, on our platforms and, um, you know, we like to try to bring them in as much as possible to get that message out there. I love that so much because you can essentially come with any background and have any skill sets and really offer something to the movement, no matter like. Yeah, what and we bring. need we need you. We need more people that are not wonky NGO activists. Like this is really like I think it's amazing the work you're doing and having more health advocates talk about this issue. Um, again, it's got to be intersectional. Yeah. And um, I know that you've talked to a lot of uh, community members uh, who are on frontline communities or indigenous folks. And what have you seen um, the health impacts or the impacts on their community and way of life that have been uh, disrupted by plastic and plastic pollution? Yeah, I mean, with indigenous communities, similar to um, some of the black communities uh, facing the petrochemical build out, there's um, extremely high rates of asthma, cancer and respiratory illnesses. Plus, you're grappling with, you know, a lot of emotional trauma from people continuously harming your land. Right. And, and having no safeguards and protections for that. There is obviously that the water is sacred. The, the water um, justice movement is is strong and, and alive. And so there's a lot of um, concerted, concerted efforts to protect these sacred sources and these sacred sites in the face of the grooming plastics industry. And so when we think about, you know, what we can do as everyday consumers, of course, decreasing plastic is one piece of it. Like we all have to be doing that anyway. I think that's an obvious, but how can we level up and also support some of these frontline and, and fence like fence line fights. Um, and in terms of, you know, supporting our indigenous colleagues, one of the things I hear the most is, tell people what's going on, you know, get involved at the local level, especially if you're in these polluting states. Um, I have a dear friend that works for Society of Native Nations, and he is at the, you know, forefront of the negotiations coming out of the Global Plastics Treaty um, at the international level. And, and one of the things he says is, you know, we are up against so many other things, like the environment is one piece of it, but it's also not separate from, from all of these other uh, issues. So they're fighting for, for very basic 
rights, like access to safe water, clean drinking water, access to breathable air, access to healthy soil so they can grow their food. Um, it's, it's very basic, but it's almost impossible to get through to industry at this point. And, and like I said, when I started, we're now increasing production, even though there's so much suffering happening at this expense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really hard for um, decision makers to recognize the the health impacts too, because we have more access to healthy water and healthy air because we can afford to live in those places. Well, I love what I love that you just said that. And like understanding there is so much difference with the level of accessibility. And so we need to do everything we can if you're in positions of privilege to amplify those needs um, at the table and and build that table that will allow for those voices to be building it with you. And, And so I'm really thrilled that with, you know, even the delegates at the Global Plastics Treaty, it's a lot of the people that we've already talked about today that are in those negotiating rooms. So I do think we've come a long way, like the Banner Sisters are there, um, for the last treaty negotiation in Paris and and so is is Frankie as well. So I do think to be able to create policies and real lasting systemic change people that have impacted or have a real knowledge of what's happening on the ground have got to be in those decision rooms. Absolutely. Decision making rooms. Yeah. What are some of the policies that people are focusing on um fighting for uh international or nationally? So the Global Plastics Treaty is something to definitely be watching out for. There's five sessions that are going to be taking place over the next couple of years. And the last Global Plastics Treaty, also known as INC2, took place in Paris. And it's to take a stand, a global stand on throwaway plastic in the form of an international legally binding instrument um, on plastic pollution that if this goes forward, this draft would be ready to go by the end of 2024. So if it goes forward, this could be one of the most significant environmental agreements in history um, while tackling human health, social injustices, biodiversity loss, and climate change. Um, I have been following the treaty pretty closely. Unfortunately, this has come up where not all critical voices have been invited to the table. Um, in fact, the United Nations was limiting the number of passes uh, for people to get in. That means those that were excluded were scientists, people from communities in the global south, essential indigenous voices, and even waste pickers. Um, so we are very concerned with how much industry involvement there will be. Uh, so there there really needs to be from the inside out, like more of an equitable way to carry these delegations forward. Um, but overall, this is a massive progress towards turning off the tap. And, you know, we're bringing a lot of solutions we want to see scaled up to the table. So this is scaling up economies of refill and reuse. This, you know, falls into this inclusive community-led zero-waste infrastructure that we were talking about earlier. Um, And it's also the most affordable way to phase out waste disposal, create better jobs, and build resilient communities. Hmm. 
Um, even though this is a huge step forward, there are still nuances in the fact that we aren't inviting all of the voices to the table, which doesn't mean that this is necessarily like, oh, this is bad because not all the voices are there. This is a good step, but we need to still maintain this awareness that we could be doing better. Absolutely. And if you want to actually have progress in the external world, how are your, how you're building it internally does really matter. And, and that's something we've took to heart also at people over plastic, you know, our reporters um, are hired from within the community. So they're based in New Orleans. They're um, black Southerners. They have a lot of pride in, in what they do and the work they're um, contributing to. And this is a discrepancy I also saw in terms of the nuance when I was the, the main media liaison for the Break Free from Plastic movement for many years. And I just noticed how much um, the whitewash media perspective was undercutting some of the really incredible stories that we were feeding to them, like on a silver platter and just kind of collecting the pieces uh, that they thought would be uh, splashy. And it, a lot of, of it was like victims, uh, portrayals of victimhood and this doom and gloom. And well, wait, what's the other part of that story? Like, I'm sure there's more to it. Mm. Yeah. And it's something to also just be be aware of in all of these like environmental movements too. Like COP is trying is starting to get a little bit infiltrated with, oh, yeah. <laughs> with fossil fuel <laughs> industry. <laughs> So even if it's it's labeled as like friendly for the environment, we definitely have to do our research and be a little bit more educated as to where the funding comes from. Yes. One of the tips I always tell people, um, especially when you're wanting to get involved or maybe you want to donate, you know, a, a great way if you don't want to, you know, become a full on activist is like open up your pocketbook, right? Like donate to research you know, under-resourced organizations that are especially on the front lines. But I always say, check your boards and sponsors of NGOs and of these conferences, because that'll give you a clear picture of what's actually going on behind the scenes um, and how this is going to manifest in the real world. So if you see Coca-Cola or even Exxon, you know, what's actually going on here that should raise some serious red flags. Yeah, that's very helpful. And so I, I love that you brought that up. Like if you don't want to be a full on activist, here are some things to do. So for our listeners, or if even just for myself, how can I be more involved in this work? What can I contribute? Uh, where do you um, invite people to kind of jump into this movement? Yeah, I mean, the first step is to be well informed and get all those nuances, right? Like listen to Amanda's podcast, listen to my podcast, listen to um, podcasts that we might amplify within hours for, for trusted embedded resources. Um, do your own investigation and, and some of the tips that I said already in terms of, you know, who's really funding these organizations that are putting out information. It's also really important to look at resources that are peer reviewed and not sponsored by industry. Um, I was even disappointed to see National Geographic get getting sponsored by the American Chemistry Council, which is an industry front group a couple of years ago on their plastics reporting. Right. So we need to constantly stay vigilant about the sort of um, mission creep, if you will, and values creep. Um, another great way is to donate, you know, and even groups like ours, like people over plastic, um, we're very small and 
Black, Indigenous, and and people, uh, we're not Indigenous, but we're um, we're a sm- very small group focused on getting the stories out. So if you're interested in, you know, supporting frontline groups directly, that really is the priority. But if you're really invested in, in storytelling and that narrative shift, you know, we're a great group to donate to. Um, there are also countless ways to get involved at the local level. So for instance, we're focusing a lot on Texas and Louisiana um, and targeting our audience to those communities specifically. So we've seen like a lot of people get in touch with people we um, feature like the Banner Sisters um, or Rye St. James and see what you can do in terms of um, voting and and getting active at, at the local level. And this is really critical for Gen Z voices, especially that they just have a lot more to lose because this is the the generation that's going to be inheriting a lot of this. Um, And at the very least, is like having a conversation at the dinner table. As Amanda said, a lot of people don't even know that um, plastic comes from oil and gas. And and that's okay, but that's a conversation starter. You know, we we have to understand that plastic didn't just like come from thin air, right? Like it came from an extractive and extremely harmful industry that's projected to forge on if we don't um, get behind this fight. Very helpful. Thank you. And um, I just wanted to highlight too that um, earlier on, you had mentioned that you're not necessarily a health expert, and but you definitely know a lot about plastics. But I think it's really important that we start framing or one of the aspects of storytelling frames uh, the climate crisis as a public health crisis because we can't live in a world where we can't drink the water or breathe the air. And we used to think it was just these fence line communities and we could pay to move away from it. But as we're seeing even just this summer, it's it's affecting us all. Um, and so it's it's definitely a health crisis and it's intersectional. Um, so it, it's not just one or the other. It definitely affects all of us. Absolutely. That that's such a great point. And if there were more health advocates uh, talking about this issue, I I would say that's a massive win um, for all of us to get that messaging across. I'll do my best. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, more of us started the trend. Thank you, Amanda. (laughs) Yeah, of course. All right. So lastly, we ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence: "The future is blank." The future is intersectional. Perfect. Awesome. And where can we find more information from you, more of your storytelling? Um, We can also link all of the stuff that you mentioned in the bio as well. Yeah, so you can check us out at peopleoverplastic.co. We are reporting um, on the ground, mostly in New Orleans right now. So you can follow along on our multimedia journalism, uh, which is led by Alexis Young across social media. We're most active on TikTok and Instagram. We're focusing really on video shorts and making things really digestible and punchy. So I hope uh, I hope you find the information appealing and inspiring. And yeah, drop us a note. We'd love to hear what you think of it. And then lastly, I'll plug our season four podcast is in production right now, and it will be released on all major podcast apps in just a few weeks. We're on Spotify, Apple, and all that good stuff. 
Awesome. Well, Shilpi, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. um, And I really look forward to keeping in touch and staying in conversation. Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 